If you want to pick a passage to start at, you could start at Hebrews chapter 1, but we'll be all over the place today. Just to recap where we're at, um, planning this morning to kind of unfold uh, uh, some thoughts on the importance of the Old Testament. And then in two weeks, if the Lord allows, we'll begin digging into the book of Hosea. Um, that will be, there'll be a lot of things. It'll be exciting. Uh, it will be intense. If you haven't read it recently, I invite you to read it and uh, see kind of the intensity that the Old Testament prophets bring to the text of Scripture. And so I want to lay out for us today kind of a, just a theology of why the Old Testament is important. Why do we spend any time in the Old Testament at all? We'll spend a lot of time in the New Testament developing those thoughts. Um, and then just to kind of back up here for a moment about uh, our plan next week as well, John uh, will be most likely leading us in a, a time of thought on, on prayer, so you won't want to miss that. Uh, we'll be out of town uh, getting to uh, officiate Stephen Savas's wedding, and we're looking forward to that. He'll be married in Cleveland next, next Sunday. The Old Testament. It's a big part of your Bible. If you removed it for some odd reason from your Bible, in a sense, it'd be like removing the flour from bread. It would be like removing the oxygen from our atmosphere, the hydrogen from water. There'd still be something left, but it just wouldn't be complete. You can't really remove the Old Testament from your Bible and still consider yourself to have a complete Bible. But... The Old Testament, for some reason, has a big target on its back, and people like to shoot at it a lot. The Old Testament gets attacked from skeptics and Christians alike. We must not do that with our scripture, with God's scripture that he's given to us, but it's really no surprise because what has Satan's tactic been from the very start that he opens his mouth? The very first words that come out of Satan's mouth in the scripture is, did God actually say? And so it's no wonder that the whole of the Bible has a target on it, and especially the Old Testament, which is equally the word of God to the New Testament. So the New Testament and the Old Testament get targeted by the enemy, but this morning we're going to be thinking about the Old Testament particularly. But if the Old Testament and the New Testament are equally the Word of God, then we should equally love both. We love the whole Bible. We love it all. And so I'll give you some reasons for why we love the Old Testament. But first, let me give you a couple of examples of how the Old Testament has been attacked. The Old Testament really has been attacked for a long, long time. But we'll start in the year around 100 AD by a man named Marcion. Marcion was a very influential man who, in a sense, got kicked out of the church and tried to start his, old, his own church. He composed what he thought to be his own scriptures. Not that he wrote it, but he took what was floating around in the Gospel of Luke and in 10 of Paul's epistles, and he took those and he put those together and he redacted them, kind of changed them, edited them some, and he put them together and said, here, church, Here's all of the scriptures that you need. To quote one 
church historian Roger Olson says he believed the church needed reform and needed to be stripped of all vestiges of Judaism, including the Hebrew Bible and its God, Yahweh. And so he got rid of the Old Testament entirely, and then the New Testament elements that sounded too Jewish to him, he got rid of those too, and he presented to the church his concoction of what Scripture should be. Well, why did he dislike the Old Testament so much? Why did he want to get rid of the whole thing? One other church historian says, the God that Marcion saw in the Old Testament was cruel, arbitrary, petty, warlike, and stupid. That's what Marcion thought of the Old Testament God. He didn't like him, and so he just got rid of him. Another historian says this, for him, the Old Testament had no validity for Christians, whatever, and he considered the God described in it a tribal, bloodthirsty demigod who did not deserve Christian adoration or worship. For Marcion, the Old Testament Yahweh was more demonic than divine. And what he saw Jesus came to do was to present to humanity another God. And so for Marcion, there were two gods. There was the arbitrary, evil God of the Old Testament, and there was the loving, forgiving God of the New Testament. And so he got rid of the Old Testament. Why? Because he didn't like its God. Any attack on Scripture really comes against the author of Scripture fundamentally, and Marcion proves that was his approach. He says, or it's described of him, that he thought that the Father sent Jesus to tell us that our sins are automatically forgiven without any punishment. So he has imagined this God that's totally different than the God of the Bible. To do this, he did not really need a human body. He's talking about Jesus. So Marcion denied a real incarnation. You get rid of the Old Testament and your theology gets astray way afield. And so Marcion not only denied the Old Testament, not only denied many of the letters of the New Testament, but he also denied that Jesus had a real physical body. A man named Tertullian, who was a staunch defender of the true faith, said of Marcion somewhat sarcastically, you may, I assure you, more easily find a man born without a heart and brains like Marcion himself than without a body like Marcion's Christ. And so we have these staunch defenders that go against what these heretics propose. Again, a church historian summarizes that Marcion rejected the God of the Jews and therefore believed the religion of Christianity bore no connection to the salvation history of Israel. Basically believes that with Christ came something radically new and totally unattached from everything that had been revealed prior to Christ. He rejected any kind of continuity between the Old and New Testament. He rejected it so much that he rejected the Old Testament God. And yet, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, couldn't disagree with Marcion more. Hebrews 1, verse 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Notice there that the God who spoke to our fathers by the prophets is the same God who speaks by the Son. Not two different gods. It's one God, 
revealing himself in the old and in the new. Hebrews does not tolerate a view of the Old Testament that enables us to believe that there are two separate gods. There is one God who spoke by the, father, by the prophets to the fathers and by his son. To fast forward hundreds and hundreds of years, you come to the late 19th century and you meet a man named Adolf von Harnock. He was a church historian who studied Marcion with some sympathy. And it's described of von Harnock that he perceived the essence of Christianity to lie in the fatherhood of God, the infinite worth of the individual soul, the higher righteousness, and the commandment of love. He was a theologian who held to what we would call liberal theology. He kind of denied the objective reality and knowability of God and focused in on the ethical mandates of Scripture, namely to love one another didn't bother with kind of the supernatural elements of Christianity, but focused in on the ethics of it. But Harnock has this famous quotation regarding the Old Testament. Listen carefully to this. He writes, To reject the Old Testament in the second century was a mistake which the church rightly repudiated. To retain it, to retain the Old Testament in the 16th century, was a fate which the Reformation could not yet avoid. Then note this, but to continue to keep it, to keep the Old Testament as a canonical document after the 19th century is a consequence of religious and ecclesiastical paralysis. What that means is he says, sure, the Old Testament was okay throughout some parts of history, but now that we're in the modern age, we should discard it, and to not do so is basically the church being paralyzed with some sort of fear. It's time to evolve It's time to move on. It's time to be done with the Old Testament. Friedrich Schleiermacher, who's around the same time as von Harnack, who's called the father father of modern Christian liberalism, is described this way. He says this about the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures owe their place in our Bible partly to the appeals of the New Testament scriptures make to them partly to the historical connection of the Christian worship with the Jewish synagogue, but the Old Testament scriptures do not, on that account, share the normative dignity or the inspiration of the new. The Old Testament scriptures, sure, you can have them over here. They're kind of part of our history. The New Testament scriptures, way over here, way up here. You hear the disparaging talk about the Old Testament Disparaging the Old Testament is not purely an old phenomenon. It's present with us today. People disparage it all the time. Andy Stanley says this, I'm not suggesting the two Testaments aren't equally inspired. My point is they are not equally applicable. To give them the benefit of the doubt, sure, you could tease that out and understand what that means, but then he goes on to say, too often we try to defend and incorporate the Old Testament into Christian faith, and we simply don't need to do that today. New Testament, Old Testament. Maybe not in theory. I know that Andy Stanley holds to inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture, but functionally, practically, there is a disparaging between the Testaments. 
Von Harnock again says this, the largest number of objections which people raise against Christianity and the truthfulness of the church stem from the authority which the church still gives to the Old Testament. He's suggesting that the problem that Christians and Christianity has today is we keep on giving too much credibility and authority to the Old Testament. If we do that, Christianity will be more appealing, be more easily swallowed, more acceptable. And in a sense, that's the same argument that Andy Stanley makes. We don't need to connect the Old Testament to what's going on with Jesus Christ in the New Testament because it just kind of makes it look weird and strange. Those aren't his words. That's my summary. But even today, we, we understand that people get kind of queasy about some parts of the Old Testament. It makes us uncomfortable. Maybe it would be easier to just kind of leave it in the closet, and lock it up, and don't tell anybody about it. Because it talks about things like the world being made in six days. It talks about things like the whole world being covered with water. It talks about things like the rainbow being actually a sign of God's covenant with man that he won't destroy the world with a flood again. It talks about those kind of embarrassing things like the conquest of Canaan. So maybe it would be best if we just leave it as a lesser testament and a skeleton in our closet that we only bring out and dust off if we really, really need to. Of course, we can't go that way as people who hold to God's word fully and completely. The word of God from start to finish is the word of God and we need to love it. We need to love the whole of God's word and we love it because it's all God's revelation. We love the whole of God's word because anything that is God's word is God's revelation to us. So that's really the first point. We love the Old Testament because it is God's revelation. Turn to 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. This famous passage about the Scripture is really targeted on the Old Testament. Where Paul writes this to Timothy, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. He's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The Apostle Paul's perspective is that all of the Scripture, all of the Old Testament from start to finish, the whole canon of the Old Testament is breathed out by God. It comes from him. That means it's his written revelation that he has given to his people. And all of it, every last genealogy, every last embarrassing story is profitable. All of it. The Old Testament is full of the statements, thus says the Lord. This is the word of God. And so we dare not minimize it, lock it away, or undermine it in any way. It is God's revelation to us. Rightly understand it? Yes. Rightly interpret it? Yes. Rightly apply it? Yes. But lock it away? Never. It's God's revelation. It's from him. He's the one who breathed it out. How dare we say that it would be a lesser testament. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. 
affirm these thoughts. Peter writes with clarity about the inspiration of the Old Testament. 2 Peter 1, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. He's talking about the Old Testament prophecies to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture ever comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All Scripture came from men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It means anything that's written in Revelation that's really from God is really from the Spirit. We cannot undermine it. In my Bible, if I go to the last page of the Old Testament, it shows me that there are 1,390 pages to my Old Testament. Yours probably has a different number, but it's going to be in the ballpark of a lot. There's a lot of pages in your Old Testament. And the testimony of the New Testament and all of those, a lot of pages of the Old Testament are breathed out by God, inspired by God. They are His revelation. All of it. Psalm 119 verse 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. But when we try to put the Old Testament on the back burner, either theologically or methodologically or practically, we are, in essence, putting 75% of God's written revelation on the back burner. 75% of your Bible, closer to 77%, is the Old Testament. 77% of God's written revelation of the Old Testament scriptures. God's not writing more revelation now. He's not adding to it. It's done. It's complete. And so you can't expect to just dwell on the 25% and expect, well, one day he'll get you to the 100%. He's already given you the 100%. He's given it all. So if we de-emphasize the Old Testament or miss, dismiss it altogether, then we are undermining 75% of God's revelation. And yet, there's something interesting about the Old Testament. If you go to the very last page of your Old Testament, it's Malachi chapter 4, right before the beginning of Matthew. The Old Testament, however, is incomplete revelation. The Old Testament is incomplete revelation. Look at Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. The Old Testament ends expecting more to come. It says that God is going to send Elijah. And Jesus teaches us that John the Baptist was Elijah if you would accept him. And so the Old Testament ends with this almost to-be-continued designation. 
And so the Old Testament in itself would suggest to you is incomplete. It has a to be continued. We don't stop at Malachi chapter 4. We need to go on. But the Old Testament, although it's incomplete in and of itself, is the ocean in which the rest of God's revelation of the New Testament swims. The New Testament or the Old Testament sets up for us what's going to happen in the New Testament. It's the sea in which the New Testament swims. They're so intertwined, you cannot have one without the other. The revelation of the one true God that begins in the Old Testament is completed by the revelation of the New Testament. The New Testament and Old Testament are so intertwined in their roles as the revelation of God that the New Testament directly quotes the Old Testament about 250 times. And if you add up the number of partial quotes or indirect quotes or allusion, that number jumps to about 1,000 times. So if you think of the Old Testament as a bunch of threads that are being woven together into the New Testament, you've got about a thousand threads that are making up the thread or the sweater of the, Old, of the New Testament. And if you try to strip away for some reason the Old Testament from the Bible, go all the way. Go all the way and take it out of the New Testament as well. And what you will find is you've got a New Testament that has more holes than Swiss cheese. Because it is so dependent on the revelation of the Old Testament that you can't have a New Testament without an Old Testament. The way that the Old Testament works is it's like laying a road for us. It's laying the pavement, and we follow that all along. We come to Malachi chapter 4, and it's like the bridge is out. And we get to Matthew 1, and we say, oh, the road continues, and we keep going to Revelation. And it's all one complete revelation from God. If you just turn over in your Bible, uh, past that almost empty page that says the New Testament to Matthew chapter 1, you see how important the Old Testament is to the New Testament. The very first page of your New Testament picks up right where the Old Testament leaves off. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If you haven't read your Old Testament, you don't have a clue what he's talking about. And you read on, and it mentions all these names, Tamar, Perez, Hezron, Ram, Abinadab, Nashon, Rahab, Boaz, Obed, Ruth, Jesse, David, Solomon, Abijah, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Ahaz, Manasseh, Josiah. And you go through all that and you're like, what is this? What's well, a genealogy that connects what happens in the New Testament directly to what happened in the Old Testament? And so if you want to undermine the Old Testament, we'll go ahead, but start tearing pages out of your Bible. Because it is so dependent on the full revelation. The Old Testament's a compelling book. If you haven't read it before, read it for yourself. If you only were taught it in Sunday school, read those Sunday school stories yourself because you might find some people's heads get chopped off that nobody told you about in the Sunday school classroom. It's a compelling book. 
It's just an interesting book. It should be read. The Old Testament has con- exceptionally compelling stories like David and Goliath, the, the giant against the, the young teenager, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with their miraculous deliverance from the fire, or Noah and the flood, the, the story of all of the animals being saved, but it's not so much about giraffes being put into an ark. It contains tons of compelling stories. It contains compelling characters. It talks about Job, the man who probably endured more and greater human suffering than anyone else, maybe besides Jesus. It talks about Abraham, a man who left his homeland in order to go where God showed him, and he lived as a sojourner the rest of his life. It talks about Elijah, a man who competed with the king of Israel, Ahab, who took the prophets of Baal to task and had a challenge with them. The Old Testament contains compelling passages like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. The Old Testament has other compelling passages like Joshua 24, choose this day whom you'll serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As passages like Lamentations 3, the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Old Testament contains compelling genres. It has historical narratives that has story after story of the history of the world and of Israel. It has law, which talks about the way God instructed Israel to live, the Ten Commandments. It has prophecy. It tells people to turn back to the Lord and also tells things that haven't even happened yet. It has songs of worship, the Psalms. It has wisdom, pithy statements that deal with the realities of living in a fallen world. The Old Testament's just a compelling book in and of itself. But for all of the rolling hills and varieties of the Old Testament, all of its different genres and compelling stories, we have to look at the Old Testament as a unified declaration and revelation of the working out of God's redemptive plan in this world that is incomplete in and of itself but prepares for what is going to be revealed in the New Testament. And if you only look at the, New Te- the Old Testament as a bunch of compelling stories and characters, then you will miss the main point of it all, which is the revelation of God's plan to bring about salvation to sinners. We need to see that the Old Testament brings about what is more fully revealed in the New Testament, Namely, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, accomplished by Christ alone. We have a wonderful book in the Old Testament. We need to love it because it is all God's revelation to us. Secondly, we love the Old Testament because the Old Testament saturates Jesus' life and ministry. We love the Old Testament because the Old Testament saturates Jesus' life in ministry. As Christians, it should be a given that we love Jesus Christ. And that's almost like the, the mantra that we would have. We love Jesus. If you don't have that, then you don't really know what it means to be a Christian. You love the Lord who died for you. We have to love him as he has been revealed to us, not as we would desire him to be, but as he's been revealed. And as he has been revealed, is, he was revealed in a context that is really in the culture and times of the Old Testament. So the Lord who we love is revealed to us in a culture that's really saturated by the Old Testament. 
And so if you want to really love Christ, you have to understand the world that he lived in. And he really inhabited an Old Testament world. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, gives us a, a glimpse as to the intentionality of the world in which Jesus lived. Paul writes there in Galatians 4, 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, everything about the arrival of Jesus Christ in this world was intentional. It wasn't random. It wasn't arbitrarily picked by God. He chose it specifically. God had spent about 1,400 years unfolding the Old Testament. And then he brings Jesus into that world. It was planned. It was intentional. Everything about Jesus' arrival in the world was intentional. And Jesus understood this because he says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus understood that he came into a world at the exact time, exact place, with the exact culture and exact laws that he was supposed to come into. Because the Old Testament is the revelation of God's character, God's nature, God's law, and God's demand upon mankind. And Jesus came to fulfill that law. In other words, Jesus could not have shown up at the same time in India and not in Israel. Jesus could not have shown up 500 years later in Southeast Asia or 1,000 years later in the United States or 1,000 years after that in England. The United States didn't exist a thousand years after whatever my time frame was. North America, just to be consistent. Where and when Jesus showed up was particularly prescribed by God, namely because he was come to fulfill all that God had been revealing through the Jewish people and their prophets. And so we cannot say we love Jesus and dismiss the whole testament that Jesus came to fulfill. We need to understand what he came to fulfill. God's plan was that he would be born under the law to fulfill the law. Jesus says in John chapter 5:39, "You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me." So not only was Jesus coming to fulfill the scriptures, but Jesus couldn't have come to a culture without the scriptures because it was the very scriptures themselves that prepared for, prophesied Jesus Christ. And so if he just showed up with, in a culture without the scriptures, they wouldn't have a clue of who this was supposed to be. We need the Old Testament to help us understand who Jesus is and who he's supposed to be. 
But more than that, the whole life of Christ is so saturated by the Old Testament. He knows the Old Testament. He accepts it. He lives by it. He preaches the essence of it, and he fulfills its prophecy. If you want to turn back to Matthew chapter 1, we'll do a quick survey just to see how much of Christ's life is surrounded and saturated with the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, describing the birth of Christ, it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The very birth of Christ, his virgin birth, is foretold by Isaiah 7, verse 14. Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The birthplace of Christ foretold by the Old Testament in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Matthew chapter 3, verse 3 tells us, For this is he, speaking of John the Baptist, who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, describing John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of the Christ. Skip ahead to Matthew chapter 12. By the way, I had about 35 of these passages, and I cut them down for you. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, We wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You've got Jonah, Nineveh, you've got the queen of the south, you've got Solomon. You can't understand what Jesus is saying without the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 13, verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. That's a quote from Psalm 78, verse 2. Matthew chapter 17, verse 3. This is Jesus being transfigured. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. The law, given by Moses, the prophets, represented by Elijah, Jesus, the fulfillment of both. Matthew 19, verse 4. As the Pharisees attack Jesus about divorce, he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Matthew 21, verse 13. As Jesus cleanses the temple, 
He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus quoting from Isaiah 56, 7. And it goes on and on and on and on and on, where Jesus' whole life, ministry, teaching is all saturated by the Old Testament. And so if you strip away or undermine the Old Testament, you effectively strip away the Christ. There's nothing left of him. Because his whole life is surrounded by the Scriptures. His life and miracles mirror the Old Testament. When Jesus calmed the storm, that's a representation of Psalm 107, 23-30. When he cleansed the lepers, he's mirroring what happened with Naaman in 2 Kings 5. When he raised the dead, he's mirroring what Elijah does with the widow's son in 1 Kings 17. When he feeds the crowd, he's mirroring what happens in 2 Kings 4, 42-44, when Elijah or Elisha feeds a multitude of people. Almost everything about the life of Christ can in some way be tacked back to the Old Testament. The one who's the very object of our faith, the one in whom we put our whole hope and faith is almost unrecognizable without the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament revelation that makes sense of who Christ is and what he accomplished for us. There's this amazing interview um, that came out a few years ago between Ben Shapiro and John MacArthur. I'm sure some of you have seen that. Uh, Ben Shapiro is an exceptionally bright political pundit, and he's Jewish. And John MacArthur, in case you don't know, he's a pastor. And they're sitting down and talking about a variety of things, and one of the things they talk about is the differences between Judaism and Christianity. John MacArthur, speaking to a practicing Jew about the differences between Judaism and Christianity... And John MacArthur says this, looking in the eyes of Ben Shapiro, I am a Christian because of the Old Testament. Without the Old Testament, I don't know whether I could believe the New Testament. How do I know that Jesus is the Messiah if I don't have all the predictions of the Old Testament defining him when he shows up? We need the Old Testament, brothers and sisters. We cannot do away with it. It is essential to our faith. Oh, I'm not saying that you had to read the whole book and be an expert on the Old Testament law and prophecies in order to come to faith in Christ, but for your faith in Him to grow, for you to know the real Christ, you need to know the book that He is saturated with. He's so saturated with it that moments before He dies, He calls out to God, crying out, Oh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. Guess what? Part of the Old Testament. We love the Old Testament because it saturates the life and ministry of our Lord. And then thirdly, we love the Old Testament because it promises the Messiah and the gospel. The Old Testament gets a bad rap. A lot of times people see What happens in the Old Testament, they just see judgment, 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 judgment. There's no hope, no mercy, no grace. It's just severe damnation all over the place. And yeah, there's a lot of that. That's not all there is by any stretch of the imagination. It gets accused of being a harsh book with a focus on the wrath and judgment of God, but that sole emphasis is entirely mistaken. And it's corrected when you know what the whole thrust of the Old Testament is leading towards. 
We must not think of the Old Testament as only a book of judgment. The way that the New Testament writers refer to the Old Testament, get this, is that the Old Testament is a book of promise. That's the way the New Testament writers seem to predominantly view the Old Testament. It's a book of promise. Good promises, not bad ones. You see this as you go back to the very start of your Bible, Genesis chapter 3. Verse 15, this famous verse, after Adam and Eve have disobeyed God by following the advice of the serpent, God declares to the serpent who deceived them, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Very start of life post-fall begins with a declaration by God that the serpent who deceived man, the head of that serpent will be crushed by a seed of the woman. It's a promise. You could really look at the rest of the Old Testament in some way relating to the unfolding of that promise. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. God speaking to Abram. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. I don't think it'd be inappropriate to say that without the truth of that promise right there, everyone in this room would have absolutely no hope. That promise given by God, which connects back to Genesis 3.15, is the hope for all of the families of the earth. That through Abram, God will bring blessing. Yes, there's cursing for those who dishonor him, but for those who bless him, there will be blessing that come to all the families of the earth. Paul comments on this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, and it's worth turning there just so you see it. Galatians 3, verse 8. And the scripture, referring to the Old Testament, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, did what? Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. The Old Testament has the seed of the gospel, has the promise of the gospel, And it's the unfolding of that promise, the expectation of that promise coming to fruition and culmination with the coming of Christ. And so the New Testament authors emphasize that the Old Testament is full of a God who makes promises that he will fulfill. It could be described as promises plural or promise singular, but either way, it's all relating to that promise that God is going to bless the nations through Abraham's offspring. Walter Kaiser, the theologian, makes this comment. He says, in some 40 passages 
of the New Testament. It spreads through half the books of the New Testament. The New Testament uses the word promise to summarize the heart of the Old Testament message. Acts chapter 26, verses 6 through 7, is Paul on trial. And he gives a very succinct description of why he is on trial, why he's on trouble. And we all know that Paul, of all people, was a gospel preacher. He went around preaching the gospel. And as he summarizes what he does, he says this for why he's in prison. Acts 26, verse 6 and 7. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they certainly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Imagine that. Paul summarizing the message that he's proclaiming as the promise of the Old Testament, the gospel message that Paul proclaimed, namely that Jesus Christ is Lord and offers forgiveness, is the promise of the Old Testament. Please, do not look at the Old Testament as a book of only judgment and condemnation when the New Testament writers look at it as a book that has the promise of our gospel. And we have to read it, understanding, yes, there is judgment, and we have to know the severity of God, but we also note his kindness. And you will see it again and again and again in the Old Testament. I have passage after passage after passage listed here describing the Old Testament as a book of promise, but I will forego that for now. Some unfortunately, would have us, in a sense, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Whatever that means, I think we need to be careful to do less unhitching and more hitching to the, new, to the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, as you think and talk uh, with unbelievers, one of the key uh, issues that they face is the veracity of this book. It's where a lot of questions come. Is this book trustworthy? Is this book legitimate? Is this book true? One of the primary ways we know that this book is true is the incredible unity that is there from start of Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation chapter 22. And if we try to get rid of three-quarters of the revelation God has given we are undermining one of the most powerful tools God has given us in apologetics. We cannot undermine the scripture and expect people to come to faith of the God of the scripture. Close with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 4. The very summary of the gospel that we know and love, Paul gives is this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God who's given us a written revelation that is complete, We thank you for the Old Testament. 
the message of promise that's there. Father, I pray that we'd be good students of the word, that we would be saturating our own hearts and minds with it, that we would rightly interpret it and apply it and understand it. We'd not be lazy. I pray, Father, that we would face both your severity in the Old Testament and your kindness, and we would accept both. Father, may we worship you as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is foretold in the Old Testament. Thank you for this precious gift you've given us. May we be people of the book. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.